Welcome to the Get to Vet podcast, where we bridge the knowledge gaps in the military transition process so you can focus on what's ahead. Hey, Get to Vet listeners, this is Mike. And now for my personal disclaimer, although I am active duty military, I'm not an official spokesperson of the United States Navy. Any of my views expressed on the Get to Vet podcast are based on my personal experience. Thanks for listening. What's up there, Get to Vet listeners? This is Trevor Wax Maxwell. Sorry, I screwed my name up. <laughs> <laughs> and with me, as always, is the lovely and talented Mike Riggs. <laughs> hey, and uh, we have a great guest today, Eric Bevavino. Um, I actually had to make sure before we started that I could say that right because I didn't want to look like an asshole. And then you have screwing your own name up. That's the funny part. Yeah. So, uh, imagine the irony. But, uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll let Eric uh, introduce himself, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, you know our topic with this is is pretty interesting. It's especially for folks that are looking to get into the corporate world is kind of the theme today for the discussion. But uh, Eric, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, thanks, guys, and thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. Not a lot of people try to, uh, you know, figure out how to say Bevavino before uh, it just kind of comes out. And, uh, you know, my Italian heritage, it actually means drink wine or wine drinker in Italian. And, and if you meet another Bevavino in the U.S., uh, chances are I'm, I'm related to them. So not, not too many of us out there. But, yeah, happy to be here. So my story is uh, out of I'll go back to high school and make this kind of as brief as possible. But uh, Top Gun was out in high school, right? When I was in high school in the 80s or maybe late 80s. And uh, I wanted I decided I wanted to join the Navy from then to be a fighter pilot. Well, as you can see from the glasses, I don't uh, have the eyes to be a, a jet jock. So I went into uh, ROTC at Penn State, uh, mechanical engineering, and really sort of tried to find a home. And the home that I found was uh, 9040 BDO going to uh, die school in 1990. And uh, that, that sort of fit with me because I didn't think I was, wanted to really be on ships all the time. And I, I wasn't sure that I was uh, capable or well-suited enough to go to anything like BUDS or EOD school at that point. So, but I figured diving, I could do that. It was harder than I thought, you know, getting through dive school, but uh it really helped me um, really become a man, you know, getting into the Navy, getting into the high school, the community and everything like that. And I really it, it's part of my identity today and uh, part of the reason why I want to give back to vets and try to help on on podcasts like this. So uh, out of dive school, went to a, a junk boat, ARS-8, the preserver out of Little Creek for a year and a half, decommissioned her. These are the Clinton Navy years if you guys remember that, and then went sort of across the bay to the teen piers in uh, MSO 440 on the exploit for another couple of years. And then uh, as a, a lieutenant, I decided to make the transition really to the reserves, which is one of the things I'll offer here is that I think the, the Navy reserves, you know, of course, you can't like hate reservists to go into the reserves because you don't want you don't want to not you know be in in company that you don't want to uh sort of meld into but that was a nice off-ramp for me and enabled me to keep tabs on um, really what 
my Navy experience was, or, or maybe make an easier transition. And I ended up staying in the reserves for another 18 years. Uh, it's been about five or six years since I retired from the reserves. And it was a great experience. I got to keep diving. I got to go uh, and be part of reserve mudsuit debts when they still had them. And then an NEDU debt, which is a little known up in Great Lakes, about 10 people, 10 divers up there. And we got to, you know, ice dive in Lake Michigan and, and learned how to ice dive actually through the reserves because, you know, Navy diving doesn't do a tremendous amount of cold water diving, but there are a couple of firefighters up there that knew what they were doing. So uh, went off to that uh, and, and actually uh, met some folks that you guys know at uh, EOD OSU 10 out of Fort Story and did a, you know, a tour there three years as a reserve coordinator there and then moved off to some staff positions with CNFJ in Japan and then uh, AFRICOM really out of Italy. I got to work with guys that uh, work with um, interdiction of trafficking and people and arms and drugs and stuff like that throughout the Mediterranean to help other other countries get good at that. So, so that that's sort of my Navy background. In while I was in the reserves, um, I was um, fundamentally have been in corporate positions, and uh, that's what I wanted to kind of talk about today because that transition was kind of clunky. For me, and it may be clunky for other people. So I want to try to give the the benefit of my experience there and how that how that went, what I learned, what I learned through the school of hard knocks, basically for the most part, and um, and how that went. But yeah, that's that's kind of who I am and and how I've gotten here. Well, that's awesome because that's I mean, really, that's what we're all about is is sharing that information. So. How long ago did you transition into the reserves? Now you're going to make me do math in my head, which I'm not, I'm not good at. <laughs> mechanical, mechanical engineering degree from Penn State, but uh, let's we're see. Both, it was we're, we're both from West Virginia, so it's, you, you can smoke us both. <laughs> yeah. So, so 1994, 94, 95-ish, right? So we're talking 20, 25 years ago, right? And I've been with... So I, I went from the Navy to Castrol, which had been sort of taken over by BP. So that was corporate. I uh, did that for five years, including a, a year of international there. And then I went to Chevron, another oil company, right? Did lubricant sales and, and that type of thing in uh, Northeast Ohio. I, I moved to Cleveland for that. Did that for eight years in multiple positions. Then I went off and did a, a smaller company, maintenance and reliability consulting, which is another sort of theme here that I think uh, anybody in the service, whether it's the Navy, I know the Navy the best, of course, but I have some friends from other services that have a heavy maintenance background that they could transition into easily into the civilian world. I think there's a big need for that. And then um, I've been with Valvoline now for 10 years in, in a corporate sales a position. So yeah, it's been, been 25 years since then. It goes fast. So when, when you say corporate, um, I guess, you know, that can mean a lot of, a lot of different things, but what does that mean specifically to you when, when you're saying corporate? So for me, it's publicly traded companies that, uh, you know, report to wall street on their quarterly earnings and, and really have a, uh, a global presence, uh, though corporate doesn't need to be defined that way. That's kind of my 
definition uh, of what it is. And it's a great question, right? So when I, I look back at my Navy times, I mean, the Navy is a giant, you know, uh, government organization, right? It, it, but it functions uh, a lot like many corporations, right? There's, there, there are hierarchies, there are, you know, standards of, of behavior and procedure and training and everything like that. So I think over time, I've come to learn that even though I, I view corporate America, or I have probably until the last six months as much different than, than the service, only because it's a different idea, you know, profits are the driver in cor- corporate America, mostly, right? And service is the driver in, in the Navy and the armed services. I came out of the service thinking they were completely different and they're not that different, right? Even though the ultimate objective may be profitability and brand and everything with a corporation, people are the same, right? And leadership is the same. And, you know, how you relate and how you accomplish things, that's the same, except, you know, in the corporate world, you don't, you know, you don't sign in a paper saying, I'm, going to obey the orders of those appointed, you know, above me and, and the president of the United States, right? It's more or less, you, you have the choice in corporate America to, to vote with your feet and walk away if you don't, if you don't like what you're being asked to do, right? So it, it, it becomes more sort of influential leadership and, uh, you know, peer relationships, networking, and, and I think it, almost everything boils down to sales, right? If you want to accomplish something, even if you're in an operations capacity or in a maintenance job and you want to make progress, you want to push forward and the initiative is going to be best for everybody. You still have to sell it to somebody. It's got to be funded. And um, yeah, it's it's really not that different than, than the service from a, a structural and how to get things done perspective. But it, it, that would have been a good learning for me or tip for me as I came out, because I, I, for many years, just treated it as like, wow, this is a scary place, right? I, my job could go away tomorrow and I wouldn't even be part of those conversations because corporations are bought and sold every day. And that happens at this high level, whereas the Navy was, you know, more stable, right? If you, you may not, not have known what your next assignment was going to be exactly, but you know, you weren't going to get cut out of the program tomorrow morning, you know, so, so it adds a little bit of pressure and uh, you know, the, I think how you, how you approach and how you think about it can, can, you know, make you happier and make you more successful in those, those situations. Well, that's something that, that I talk to a lot of people about, like from doing the, the transition coaching is the fact that like, Hey, here, this is going to be a, a completely new concept for you when you get out and you go get a job, um, you know, because a lot of vets will get out and they'll think, yeah, I want to go do this. And then they do it for a year or two and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I really like this anymore. Unfortunately, a lot of them just get caught in that comfort trap and they're like, well, I don't like the job, but I like the money. And, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you have to stop attaching a, a dollar amount to your happiness. But, the, you know, the, the thing, the point that I'm getting to is like, yeah, guess what? If you are in a job and you don't like it, you could, you literally can just stop working there. Like there's no, 
Hey, you know, like, Hey, you're stuck here for two or three more years. It's like, Hey, I'm, I think I'm done here. And I, um, you know, Mike's Mike's, uh, you know, he's kind of coming to the end. Uh, he's just taking a bunch of leave. <laughs> Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. But you know, he's, he's about to, to get into that opportunity. So for, for a guy like Mike, what, you know, is, is maybe something that you would be say would be a crucial piece of advice for somebody in his shoes. That's, that's about to do that. Yeah. I, I think this is a great topic and one I wanted to, to cover with you guys. So thanks. That's a great question, Trevor. When I um, was making the transition and I went through the, the TAP program, I think that I was connected with recruiters, you know, junior military officers, JMO recruiters, and, and there are military recruiters all over the place, right? And, and that would be one thing that I would recommend because they, you know, they kind of know the organizations that like uh, former service member talent and understand, you know, what we're about because there, I mean, there are positive and negative stereotypes about military folks, right? Yeah, I mean, some of the positives are that, we have leaderships early. We're self-starters. You know, you don't. We don't need a lot of oversight to get things done. But some of the negative ones are that you know we're overbearing, or we're inflexible, or you know we need a lot of structure in order to to actually succeed. And that's you know like any stereotype that it's not always correct, right? So, uh, so getting with uh, recruiters, uh, military recruiters uh, specifically, I mean, you don't need to pay these guys, right? They get paid by the organizations that, that hire them and they can, they, they're like matchmakers, right? They can talk to you, find out what your strengths are, what you're looking for. And they help, um, if they're really good at it, they help a cultural fit between the service member and the organization or corporation that uh, is looking for them. And then it's, it's really the individual. So it'll be Mike's job to make sure that that corporate uh, culture fit is something that he, that he feels right in his hot, his heart and his gut to, to be real, right? Is it just, you know, ask about diversity in the organization. Are there a lot of other vets there? Are there minorities there, you know, and that, that can tell you a lot. Is there a leadership uh, training program? Is there an executive training program? If that's what you want to be, or you feel like, you know, if you're an NCO coming out of any service, you know, you could, you could have a manager, a director level, even be a VP or higher, depending on the organization. And what are the requirements uh, within those organizations to get to those levels? Sometimes people have very scripted programs like the Navy. I mean, the, a couple of the things that I missed that I could have really benefited from in the Navy was PXO school and PCO school. I mean, I got to go to Newport with some of these staff positions and, and do wargaming, and I learned a lot, and I loved it, but I didn't get any um, postgraduate education uh, through the Navy, and that was, that was something that, that would have helped me and something that I, I kind of missed in, in corporate America. Sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't exist, you know, preparing you to be an executive. In some organizations, it's, it's really good some bad, some in the middle. So I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that um, 
finding something that fits with your personality that you think you'd like to do at, with a culture that you feel comfortable with. You, you should never do anything that you don't think you get some sort of spidey sense that there's something wrong here, right? Like they're going to ask me to sell products that don't work or I don't believe in or I can't get behind because once you, once you go down, it's like the money thing, right? Once you go down that slippery slope of representing something that you don't believe in, you're not yourself anymore. And that starts, you know, it can start wearing your soul pretty thin and create more stress and cause you to drink too much or smoke too much or be angry all the time. And, you know, just, limit your lifespan. Right. And I, I think we all have a lot to give back a lot of leadership, especially in, in today's society. And we want to be able to do that as long as possible. So, and you can call me anytime you'd like, Mike, if you, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to chat about it, any of this stuff, I'm more than happy. Um, you know, and whether I can help you or not, that's, that's another question, but I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people and try to help them out. Oh, I definitely will take you up on that. <laughs> okay. One of the things you were talking about there, like some of those um, stereotypes about military, um, you know, self-starters and everything. I, I don't want to discount that. Like, I don't want to say that people, you know, in the military aren't self-starters because I think there's some there are, but you know, one of the big things in the military that we have that I, you know, my, my, I'm, I'm more of an entrepreneur. My, my experience in the corporate realm is, is extremely limited. There's that expectation that somebody can come in and just immediately be successful. And, and, and part of the reason that people get to be really successful in the military is that very intrusive leadership style um, that, you know, that very intense mentoring. And that's one of the reasons that people get really good at that job is they have that senior NCO or somebody like that who's like driving them really hard, who's like, hey, you're going to get it till you get it. I mean, I remember being a team chief, having my guys out in the sand dunes at Little Creek till two or three in the morning, like, hey, we're going to stay out here. You can either get it right or you can, you know, <laughs> liberty or, restricting or, in other or words. Die of exhaustion. <laughs> it's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> One of two things is going to happen. You're either going to quit or you're going to, you're going to win. Um, you know, it's up to you. And, and, so I think the corporate world, like people come in there and, you know, people who've never served don't really understand that. Like, yeah, I can do stuff like I can I can take things on for my own. But you have to understand, like I may I may need your help. I'm not instantly going to be able to come into this thing that I've never done before and be awesome at it. Right. I'm going to I need to learn like I need you to show me I need to do it. I need to, you know, probably make some mistakes, um, but, you know, I will learn from them. Uh, it just, I think that that's, that's, there's some unrealistic expectations about just how much of a, a self-starter a veteran is going to be when they come into that corporate world. Well, and I think, I think it's a great, a great point, right? And what my experience has been that, that there are generally a lot of people that want to help you out, right? And, and it's not, I mean, we can, we can sort of sub-optimize or hurt ourselves by thinking, Gee, I'm supposed to know this. I don't want to make my boss think he hired somebody that doesn't know this. So I'm not going to ask the question. I mean, 
there are certainly ways in today's world to find the answers, right? Google, peer, you know, talk to your peers and stuff like that. But in general, I think um, people need to be inquisitive. It, it is appreciated more than anything today, the, the hungry aspect of learning. And I think the military does a great job at this, right? Always pushing people to get the next qualification or certification. There's there's always something that comes next that you should be working on. And, and the corporate world doesn't have that. It, it really doesn't, right? So some of the things that I've sought out in that regard, I mean, are associations that are specific to the whatever industry you're in. It happens to be that I, I sell lubes, you know, oil and grease. So there's a society that has a certification about that, certified lube specialist. There's also a society on maintenance and reliability that has multiple cert certifications. So being you know, starting somewhere and learning. I mean, there's always a grace period, you know, they, they want you to get up to speed in three to six months and learn what's going on and, and function within an organization, but never be afraid to ask and never be afraid to seek out certifications or qualifications that'll set you apart from uh, the rest of the pack that doesn't, has never had any military experience and doesn't know what it's like to sort of progress um, in, in their job without being told what to do, but you, you're right. You're right. There, there isn't a ton of intrusive uh, oversight and leadership. I think corporate America is trying to get better. I think at Valvoline, we do, you know, really a great job in that. And, um, but not everybody does not, not everybody does. They have to have, this goes back to the corporate culture thing. They have to have the the thought of take care of your people and they'll take care of you, right? What we learned day one in leadership training in, in the Navy. And I, I would expand that once once people get into a role and, and they're, they're working on teams or they're leading people, um, take care of your people so they'll take care of you, but also uh, take care of your peers. That's, that's one of the sort of key things that I missed along the way that I'm, I'm doing more of now, but um, I was like, well, if my team and I do really great, then, you know, the, the clouds will part and the sky will open and we'll be, we'll get anything we want because we've proven, you know, that we can perform. And, and when you get to a certain level, you really have to prove that like on being on a staff in, in the Navy, you got to be able to function and help all your staff members achieve the mission. So, so I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. You can feel like you're out on an Island a little bit. You can feel like, Oh, this is so much worse or different than what I'm used to. And, and it's especially challenging if, if the individual feels like they're solely uh, responsible for all their achievements. Now they have to contribute and they have to be part of it, but there's this giant organization in the Navy that is helping you move forward right so everything functions as a team and if, if people get a little bit too big-headed about their accomplishments it can it can hurt their identity when they don't you know they don't succeed right out of the gate at something new with a different support structure and and can you know can bum them out right when they might be perfectly fine yeah it's just part of the process just kind of ease into it and you know, ask a bunch of questions. I, I don't know if that answers your your question or not, but that's those are some of the things that were on my mind coming in here that uh, 
that relate to it for sure. I want to, I want to go back and revisit something you talked about earlier. And, and the reason is in my almost 30 years in the Navy and the folks I've stayed in contact from, from the guys I went to boot camp with until, until today, folks who have separated and, and gone on to do other things. I cannot cite one instance where someone got out and said, I'm so glad I just got out of the Navy and never looked back. I, I can cite so many instances where folks have said, I wish I would have stayed in. I wish I would have gone in the reserves. I wish I would have, you know, I wish I just stuck it out to 20 or whatever I had, you know, it was the most, it was some of the best times of my life or whatever. And, and not everybody that's going to listen to this episode is going to be, reaching 20 years or 30 years you know what what are some of the and I I try to as I hear folks that are just separating you know I try to talk to them about hey you know consider the reserves you know at least you have that you know you have that piece that still ties you into the military because I think it's you know you can probably speak this a lot better than I can it's much easier to get in the reserves on your way out than it is to just get out completely and then try to come back. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt that, that was my sort of soft landing because I, I, you know, I'll tell you guys what, what I tried to do with, with little uh, advisement coming out. Now I did have an XO on the minesweeper who was uh, a reservist. He had decided to come back on active duty to be the XO of the ship. So he went to the reserve center in Richmond uh, after his tour on, on the exploit since it was decommissioned. And I was uh, transitioning out of the Navy. He's like, why don't you come up and see me? And I did. And that, that helped me out quite a bit because really, I mean, we ought to be proud for what we accomplished in the Navy. Sometimes the skills aren't exactly transferable. I mean, I could have went and tried to dive on oil rigs, right. And do that whole thing, but that sort of a closed system it's a young man's game you know <laughs> and all that type of stuff and not nearly um well what i've heard uh, heard is only my opinion perhaps not as uh safety conscious as as the navy is right and, and that type of thing so it is really a healthy off-ramp um to go in there and i i found um all the organizations i've worked at they enjoy the fact that i'm um, you know, spending two weeks uh, a year at least, and you can do as many hours or days, typically, especially in high tempo times during you know, wartime in Afghanistan and Iraq as, as you want to do. Uh, it's not for, for a lack of things to do. I think it's a great off-ramp. It keeps your identity and potentially the, the thing that you're most proud of. With me, I'm most proud of my Navy service. It keeps you involved, engaged, you continue to use the skill sets that you've learned. You're not just ripping the Band-Aid off and going from an EOD tech to a salesperson, right? You know, that's kind of a dramatic change, right? And uh, that's you know, kind of, actually, yeah. that's exactly what I did. And that that was a huge change. <laughs> well, and, and some people can do it, right? But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. The, the hard thing and you know this isn't hard for you guys that have been on multiple deployments but you know as, as you have a family you know you're trying to develop a family life and everything like that one weekend a month though it doesn't sound like much 
it just makes two straight weeks uh, of work, right? And and when you have a family, you, you tend to need those weekends and that downtime, especially if you're coming off of being away all the time in the Navy and you got to re-engage with your family and understand your wife and your kids a little bit more and, and be the best father or mother or whatever that you are, right? It, um, it can, it can take that some of that away, but I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I got a hell of a lot of um, very interesting experiences uh, through the reserves. Uh, I mean, the, um, the promotion was fine and similar to the Navy. Uh, and, and I think really re- reserves bring a lot to, um, to the party really, if they get activated and, and even on the weekend sometimes and in interacting with active counterparts, because, uh, they may not be as, as quick and up to speed as their active counterparts for sure, but they bring other things to the table, like, um, you know, it experience or, you know, project management experience or all of these other cool things that, you know, people are doing and, and getting good at in the civilian world and actually can provide a great network to get a job. Uh, so if reservists are coming into your unit or helping you out once in a while, get to know them, you know, connect with them, network with them. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I don't want to say it's a sure thing, but it's, 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 easier in my mind to look at a vet with similar experience and be able to communicate clearly, quickly, as opposed to bringing somebody that you just don't know, you don't know where they've been or what they've done. At least you have a common language starting out if you're pulling somebody in, you know, that you know, but yeah, the reserves, I think the reserves are great. Uh, I I really do. And I, I created a lot of friendships, had a lot of friendships and still, go on today. And um, yeah, it's the camaraderie guys. I mean, the, the biggest fear or the biggest loss I think is uh, when you step out of a tightly knit high tempo unit, whether it's EOD or diving or on a ship or seals or whatever, you, you miss that camaraderie and um, it's hard to find, let me tell you. And if you get in the reserves, you, you still can, keep that going. And if nothing else, that's probably a great reason, <laughs> great reason to do it because I mean, we're all human at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, we, we're a brotherhood and sisterhood and we need to stick together. So, yeah, I, I think that spans just all, cause I remember, you know, people that I was on the enterprise with, we had such a great time in the shop I was in. Um, and I still chat with, you know, quite a few people that I was, that I was there with, but, um, as far as, you know, for what you do now, you do a lot of the, the maintenance type stuff. Now, was that like something that you pursued or was it just kind of like an opportunity that you were like, yeah, hey, I guess I'll go try this out and see how I like it. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So out of, out of the Navy, um, I'll give you a quick segue on the the things I tried on my own that didn't work. So I I thought, well, gee, I could go work for this secret service. So I took the TEA exam. I passed that. I, you know, this, I don't know if you guys know, you probably do know people in the secret service, but it's a long, back then it was a long process to get in and in 80% of the way through, they told me I wasn't quite the right demographic for the time to, (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I went into the lie detector test and they told me what a definition of a, a lie was. And it just, you know, I, I had a much finer definition of, of what a lie was. So that, that blew that out of the work water. I looked into uh, being a NOAA diver and uh, seeing what the program was there. I got a little bit down the path on that. And, and I also looked at uh, trying to be a tugboat captain or ship captain, or, you know, at least a, a, you know, somebody who was driving the vessel. And that was, that really didn't, you know, those were the, the Navy experience type things I thought were going to be, you know, no brainer. So when I went to the recruiter and they're like, well, what about sales and technical service and in this, this oil stuff? I'm like, okay, well, you know, I traced out the systems on these ships. Some mechanical engineer kind of makes sense. And uh, I'll tell you guys, the PM system that the Navy teaches you is really badass, right? I mean, it is a great system, preventive and predictive maintenance. And it, it was fairly intuitive to me once I got out of the Navy to help people with maintenance. And then I got into uh, the, the maintenance and reliability consulting gig, which I was selling the solutions. I wasn't consulting, but you know, getting an asset list and, you know, creating the whole, whole, what used to be on paper, right? The, the daily, the weekly, the, the monthly, the quarterly, the annual uh, checks and spot checking and knowing what to do and getting that and optimizing that load leveling of that. I mean, the broader country doesn't do it like that everywhere. There are trucking companies that need a lot of help with this. There are industrial facilities that need a lot of help with this. Now, in automotive and power gen and chemicals where they're highly regulated, you know, they're better at this, but there are plenty of places that that need that kind of help. And, and the reason why it's worked for me is I'm mechanically inclined anyway, but I understand the the I really understand the value of, of preventive and predictive maintenance because we, you're at the end of the hose, uh, you know, 240 feet down. If somebody didn't change, change a seal on a compressor or, or didn't do the PMs on the hat correctly or something like that, you could be in trouble, right? So um, it's not life and death. Usually in corporate America and some of these manufacturing plants can be life and death. If they don't do if a refinery doesn't do maintenance on a hydrogen compressor, it can blow up and kill people. But, uh, you know, you have a little more slack in, in the civilian world. You have a little bit more room to breathe. And, and that's that's one of the other things is I, I have to train myself to be more patient, right? Because I've been taught, you guys are taught to make snap decisions, quick decisions, life or death things, because that's what happens, you know, when, when you're out there doing your deal. But it's just, not always, not necessarily life and death in the civilian world. Now, if you're a cop or a first responder or something like that, then, then yeah, it's the same or similar, but um, a lot of civilian activities, you know, you have time to figure it out. And, and I, I have been noted to not have enough patience in my day to day when, uh, when people aren't moving as fast as I, I think they should. Now I've gotten better at that over time, but yeah, it's stuff to work on, right? Well, it's yeah. funny how you how you use 3M as an example. And I can remember as the CMC of Mobian 6 and trying to explain to the EOD 2s and the EOD 3s, you know, 
trying to make 3M sound cool and sexy and relevant to the mission. And it's just how you try to explain the why. But, you know, when you look at it and how it translates, I think, to the, the corporate side and the organizational side, you know, how it has to deal with manning and man hours and man days and how it deals with supply chain and material and all that, you know, and, and how that, you know, how that rolls into, you know, get into Six Sigma type stuff with that, those kinds of things. And, and folks just don't see that until you really start going, oh, I, I get how that parallels, you know, across the spectrum when I, when I start thinking about the next step and, and how this really does make sense when I start, you know, trying to think about what's next and how you're really managing a, a, a program, which 3M is a program, and you've been managing it this whole time, but you just really didn't understand the intricacies on why you're really doing it and really how it was feeding the system. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you, ready service spares. I mean, you. so I've got a lot of examples of this, but I'll, I'll tell you some of the most uh, perhaps pertinent ones. Uh, you could, or somebody could find themselves in a position either as a maintenance manager or maintenance tech, or, or even, uh, you know, manager in some sort of production type business power plant or, or whatever, where, where they get a new system and the new system is uh, comprised of say a conveyor belt. Um, so some manufacturing equipment and, you know, some output equipment and they get a cardboard box with the manuals and this, the DVDs uh, for a German piece of equipment, a Japanese piece of equipment, an Italian piece of equipment, and hopefully an American piece of equipment in there too. And, they're in, and they could be say, okay, set the maintenance program up, right? In, in the 3M system, that comes to you from somewhere on high, right? And it says, go do it. In, in the real world, you could be dealing with a box of, you know, stuff that all relates to, to that line, but how do you put it all together? How do you make it all work in, uh, with your five maintenance guys and girls that are out there that, that know how to wrench and know how to calibrate and know how to do all that stuff. It can be, it can be as, as stark as that. And, you know, I mean, some trucking companies, some even, uh, like transit companies will keep, 10 to 20% more vehicles than they need uh, because they don't know when that truck or that bus is going to go down and they need a, that ready service spare to go in there. Can you imagine how expensive that is? I mean, it's a million dollar bus or, or a hundred thousand dollar truck, right? You got a hundred extra of these. It, it adds up pretty fast. So the cost of unreliability is is huge. Um, the break fix mentality, the firefighting mentality is still out there as, and as accepted as a maintenance approach when it really isn't. So, so uh, Navy people, you know, service people with a background in maintenance bring a lot to the party. I think structure. Yeah. Yeah. Discipline. Mike, well, Mike and I were both in, you know, very preventive maintenance intensive rates before we went to EOD school. I was a fire controlman. He was an electronics technician and that, you know, that's, that's your job is maintaining that equipment. And PMS is a huge part of that. And, um, you know, a lot of guys, I think there's this misnomer that like when you, 
you know, become a SEAL or Green Beret or EOD tech or whatever that, you know, it's just like, hey, bro, let's go dive for lobsters and skydive and shoot guns. And every 30 seconds of cool guy stuff that you see, um, there's probably at least at a minimum eight hours, <laughs> eight hours of backbreaking work that goes into making that stuff happen. But, you know, that's that's you're putting a ton of of backside support into making this this one event happen um and you know i remember when mike was the cmc there at mobine at six uh we uh they pulled a guy's pen uh because he fried two mark 16s on a diving trip and uh you know a good guy a colleague of ours uh you know was down there the di- these if you're not familiar with what it is it's a rebreather it's used for diving on mines and you know, that thing can go down to over 200 feet. Um, the fact that what that guy was doing actually might not have been detected until somebody was down at 200 feet and could have killed him was, I mean, that was catastrophic. Somebody not paying attention to that. And so, you know, my buddy who was down there at the time was the guy in charge was like, stop, you're done. You're going to sit in the corner the rest of this two weeks that we're here. You're not going to touch anything. You're just going to sit there and shut up. And when we get back, uh, we'll, we'll deal with you. And, and that was that, that guy had already had a few strikes. And uh, so that was the thing is like, Hey, this is life-saving equipment. I can't trust you with this. I can't trust you on anything else. Um, that's you're, you're done. Um, so that's relates to the importance of that stuff. Cause yeah, taking care of your gear, um, is super critical. Yeah, I I didn't have a lot of active duty time in the Mark 16, but in the reserves at NEDU, I got to I got to spend more than more than my fair share on one one six hour day uh, with the rig. Um, luckily, they gave us air breaks every hour and a half uh, to do what we were doing <laughs> or it would have been, a, and I'm glad the maintenance was done there because it would have been probably a, a not so fun next couple days after that, that day, if, um, if they didn't work the way they were supposed to. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting and it's in it maybe not as glamorous or, or right in your face every day as to what, what needs to take place, but it is really important. It goes to the bottom line and um, you know, it's, it's needed out there. So I would recommend, you know, anybody that's interested in me, I mean, you can contact me as well. I've got a network of friends in the, uh, in the reliability community that, um, you know, could help out as well if they're they're looking for for somebody so you were talking about ice diving earlier i gotta tell a little sea story <laughs> so 2004 i got to dive the i think it was the mark 16 mod one it just they just fielded the new uh the new modification they wanted us to dive it up in norway above the arctic circle in february so it, the the days were very very short the nights were very long and as you can imagine it was very cold so we actually took the dive manual and did exactly what the dive manual said, the chainsaw, the triangle. Oh, nice. I can't tell you how many times I tied the buddy line, the tending line to around my waist to make sure that knot didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> it's and a I, lot different when you can't just come straight up if you, if you're lost. right? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and I actually got to dive the Mark 16 
at night under the ice, which is probably one of the sketchiest dives ever. And I think it was a bone crushing, you know, 20 foot depth, but I'm telling you, just being able to, you know, you get, fortunately the, the visibility was pretty, pretty good. And, but still that was one of the sketchiest dives ever, you know, a, a, an ice dive at night under the ice, you know, it was crazy. But one of the coolest things is I actually got the Arctic service ribbon, which is out of all the ones I have, that's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of. And the thing was we got, we got like double the days because it said, if you were, I think the instruction says, if you were living in austere conditions, which we were living in tents right on the fjord, <laughs> or you were diving, you each day counted as two days. So we were there for like three weeks, which was under the, I think the 30 day requirement to get the ribbon, but we got to count some of our days as two days, which put us above the limit and our readiness and training folks, they stayed in hotels, so they didn't get it. But all my guys on my uh, detachment, we got it. So it was awesome. One of my favorite ribbons in my, in my whole thing. <laughs> That's very cool. It's a, it's such a different world and I don't have a tremendous amount of experience, maybe less than five dives, but we, we cut the triangle in the ice too. And, you know, the first time you got a lot of trepidation, I, I tell you the value, I, I went out and bought my own dry suit uh, after that because, you know, the one that fit me was fit me was way too big. And uh, I learned quickly that having the right gear and that that scenario was uh, paramount to comfort <laughs> in an already uncomfortable situation. I had guys on my debt that were cutting the neck dams. And I refused to cut mine and I got a pretty big neck and it about choked me out every time, but mine never leaked. Theirs would leak and they would be freezing and, and I'd never cut mine and I was perfectly dry. The other thing was we were issued like the seven mil titanium gloves. Those things absolutely suck. And the Norwegians, they finally ended up giving us the lobster gloves. That, uh, like those things were phenomenal because I remember when we first started with those gloves, you would just go down and you would just sit at the bottom and until the pain would go away and your hands would go eventually numb. And then we would use the two alpha, the handheld sonar to go try to find the mines in the fjord. And it, it was terrible. And then you had just the, the hoodie and you would have, it'd be like the worst migraine ever. And you'd wait until your head would go numb <laughs> and then you would just move out. But the, the Norwegians, you know, they'd had, they'd been doing that forever. It was just one of those things where, you know, you probably need to do a pre-deployment site survey and really, really get to know the folks who you're working with and say, Hey, you know, you guys got any tips or tricks on, this is what we're bringing. This is how, you know, this is how we're dressing out, you know, well, what should we be doing? And that probably could have been answered, you know, what gloves you use and what, what heck are you? <laughs> we, we weren't smart enough then we were just like, Hey, we're America. We're going to do this, you know, like, you know, and, we, we learned a lot and made some mistakes along the way. And uh, they, they really helped us out to include like Murano wool socks. I remember doing a, a, a training exercise with the Norwegian Rangers freezing my feet off. And the guys like you know, the Norwegian Rangers, like, Hey man, what's the matter? I'm like my feet. I can't feel my feet. He's like, well, well what are you wearing? I'm like, I got like three pairs of socks on. And I said, I've got this layer, this layer, and this layer. He's like, no, no, one pair, one pair of thick Murano wool socks. That's all you need. It's, it's not going to get any better than that. And I, I was like, man, you're full of shit. But I tried it. And I swear from 2004 to this day, if I go out and do anything cold weather, I wear one pair 
of thick Murano wool socks and my feet are perfectly fine. And that is thanks to that Norwegian Ranger that I went out on that op with that one cold night in Norway above the Arctic Circle. And had I never done that, I never would have known. And I went out on ops, you know, in in, uh, in the winter in Iraq in what, 2007, 2008, when Trevor and I were over there with SEAL Team 2, those guys' feet were freezing. I'm like, hey, bro, one pair of wool socks. <laughs> Thanks to that Norwegian Ranger, pa- man. Pass it on, right? Oh, pass oh, on yeah. the tools of the trade. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's great. And, and I mean, there's a lot of wisdom to getting with uh, folks that know what they're doing in cold weather and have to deal with it all the time. I mean, if it wasn't for the firefighters that were on that reserve debt, we would have been, we probably wouldn't have done it. Right. But they, they did it all the time. We practiced in the pool with dry suits. We did all these, we did some workups, right. As, as much as we could as, as a reserve debt. And, you know, it makes a difference and it gives you confidence. Can you imagine not trusting your gear on your first ice dive being cold? You're, you know, not knowing that it only takes a couple of minutes for your face to go numb if you're on scoop, right. Or something like that. It, uh, being uncomfortable to adds, uh, as to the stress factor, there's, there's no doubt about it, but, uh, yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed uh, learning how to do that with the folks, um, up in Northern Chicago. Uh, the, those guys I'm still friends with on Facebook and they've been promoted to fire chiefs and, and all that type of stuff. It's, uh, it's a great community. It, it really is. And, and it's something to hold dear and hold close and, you know, keep telling those stories because that's, that's the fun part of it, really. So what, um, Eric, what, you know, for somebody who's about to get out and, and might want to consider going into the corporate realm, what is probably like the single biggest takeaway that you would have for them? So uh, a couple things, and we talked about exploring the reserves to have sort of this, this side safety net, right? Because the reserves not only help you maintain your contact with your experience in the Navy. Um, but they also can provide a cushion if that corporate job all of a sudden goes away. So that, that helps out a little bit. You got a little visitor behind you checking, checking your program. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, we got another special guest. Get in here real quick. <laughs> That's the best way to get it. Come on, come on in. Why don't you introduce yourself? This, hey, Cool. All right. Uh, Guess what? You're uh, going to be on the podcast now. <laughs> but yeah, so item number two, I think, would be to get get with a recruiter, uh, you know, a, a military recruiter, and um, let them know, you know, what what you're looking for, and and they can they can do the matchmaking. It's not like you're alone on a ship out there. Now, if you have a network of friends that are already working at a place that you know is great and you want to get pulled into that that orbit then you know that's that's easier but not everybody has that right or or a transition segue into a gs job that's you know maybe something that mike you'll be able to do too right because uh you know yorktown's around there and you know there's a lot of military stuff going on that needs uh gs uh, type of support that might be a, a simple transition but yeah i would get with uh, military recruiters uh, let them know, uh, let them do the matchmaking, let them work for you. Don't pay them anything, right? Because they get paid by somebody else. If somebody's asking you for money to do uh, recruiting, then they're not legit probably, right? So uh, yeah, and right. and lean on your friends, ask, you know, ask around. Yep. 
Yeah. I know that there's tons of people out there who will do it for free and, and are probably more motivated to actually, if somebody's willing to volunteer to do it, they're probably going to be a little more dedicated than, you know, somebody who's just like, Oh, whatever, this guy's paying me. So I'm going to get him placed somewhere and, and that's it. So, well, what's that? If somebody wants to get a hold of you and, and pick your brain, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, I think LinkedIn's probably the, the best place. I mean, I've got a uh, presence there as well as uh, Facebook, but um, I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to keep on with Facebook or not. So I don't know if that's a long-term solution. LinkedIn seems pretty, pretty safe. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I actually swore off of Facebook for the month. Um, maybe I'll go back. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, yeah, I do. Mike. Yeah, I, I do do um, some volunteer work uh, with 220, which is a nonprofit uh, trying to help people with PTSD through non non intrusive non drug methodology and, and they're great. And, and I think uh, Dan Jarvis might be somebody you ought to probably consider talking to uh, on the podcast. Cause he's the founder and has a great story, army guy. And so I, you know, I only say that to, to one prop 22 zero a little bit, but uh, that's the primary reason I stay on Facebook is because there's a community there that, um, if anybody's going to reach out, you know, it, it would likely be there on a personal level or, or phone call. But um, yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to get me. If anybody wants to talk, I'm happy. This is sort of my, you know, second half of life type of desire to really give back. And um, as long as I have time, uh, I'd be happy to chat. But yeah, be good. Awesome. Well, I mean, we, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. So Mike, what you got? No, Eric, thanks for hopping on with us. And uh, it was a great talk and giving us the uh, the corporate insight. And also, I think it's extremely valuable that people know that the reserves are out there as as an off-ramping option and have that other iron in the fire. You know, it's, you know, I think it's so valuable that people use that as, as a, a means to stay in touch, not only as a, you know, a career piece, but also as a, as a mind you know, stay in touch with folks, you know, that, that just, it, it can't be uh, overstated, I think. Yeah, it helped me. It helped me quite a bit and, uh, and I enjoyed it. So um, I'm really thankful that you guys are uh, having me on here. And uh, if I can help in any other way, please let me know. So you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. Thank you. Hey guys, Eric Bevavino. Uh, I said it right again. Let's see if I can get mine <laughs> right the next time. Screwing my own. Perfect. Up. Yeah. So totally great, <laughs> great start. But uh, the locals are getting restless. I know you can't see it on camera, but I got a little person down here tugging on me. So <laughs> we'll go ahead and hop off here. But uh, thanks again for listening to the show. And Eric, thanks again for uh, coming on the show and chatting with us. My pleasure. You guys are doing great work. Keep it up. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. See you. Thank you for listening to the Get to Vet podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to come on the show, email us at Mike or Trevor at gettovet.net. That's get the number two vet.net. And let us help you get to vet.